Good today, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of, in front of you this morning. Uh, thank you guys, so that would be great. Uh, and uh, while you're getting there and getting ready for their, uh, the, or uh, getting, getting there ready, I just want to let you know that next week Dave Thiessen from, uh, from uh, Harvest for Kids is going to be speaking and sharing a little bit about what God's heart is uh, in that ministry there. And that will be a great time. So if you have your Bibles, uh, <clears throat> the message this morning is entitled Preparing for Summertime. And uh, you ready for summertime, guys? Yes. Well, hopefully this will be good. I'm ready for summertime, too. Let's begin with reading God's Word. This is uh, from the Word. It says this. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever uh, reviles his father and mother must surely die. But I say to you, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained for me is now actually a gift given from God, so for the sake of your tradition you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said this, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do not worship me, teaching his doctrine the commandments of men. This is the reading of God's word this morning. As uh, let's begin, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, as we come to you today, uh, we recognize your goodness and your graciousness to us. That you have come not just to punish us or because you are mean spirited, but because you have decided, you've been dying on the cross and saving us from sin because you love us. As we begin our, our passage this morning, and we contemplate that, God, I pray that you would speak to us and show us how we can get ready for the summertime. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. I don't know if uh, this is something that you did. I, my, you want to hit the next slide there for me, guys? I don't, I don't know if this is something that every school did or not growing up. But uh, when I was a kid, I went to a school called Delta Christian School. There's a picture of it on the screen there. Uh, from grades two to grade seven, and while I was there, uh, I, I don't know. You, you guys can tell me if if you did this or not. They had a program in which, if you were from grades two to grade seven, you had to run a total of 100 kilometers during the year as a part of your physical education. Anyone want to go to school where they did that? Okay, one. <laughs> really, PCA. No? Okay. Well, it was part of my curriculum. I, we did it every day. And so every day, rain or shine, there was a 200-meter Bart Melch track around the field. And every day after recess, pouring rain, it was snowing, it was all that kind of thing, we had to run a total of eight laps around the track before we could go in and sit down for the rest of the class. And the whole idea was it was supposed to teach us the benefits of staying in shape. There's a lot of good that did. 
I just ripped my shirt. So the point being is that everyone at the school became extremely good at running. As you can imagine, extremely good at track and field, extremely good at cross country. And, uh, and I'm sorry that I'm, I'm sharing this again, but I'm running out of personal examples. When I discovered, though, through that is that running was the only athletic thing I could do at the time. And so in my junior high years, I joined the track team and I realized that I was pretty fast. Not the fastest, but fast. So fast, in fact, that when I joined the 4x100 team, we ran every race, made it all the way to the provincials. Every heat we ran, every track we went, I got all the participation ribbons at school to prove it. They're sitting somewhere in a, in a tub in, in the crawl space. Until the day that we got to the provincials, we were undefeated. When it came for the first time for us to run, the gun went off, and in the third leg, I began to start running before I got the baton, which you can do. But, before, but you have to get the baton before you cross a certain line in your lane. And if you, judge, and if you cross that line, you have to stop. Well, as you've heard me say before, I misjudged what line that was, and then I stopped. Dead center. And the guy running right behind me ran full force into me. Boom. Damn. Dropped the baton. Made it into fourth place which qualified us for the final heat. Not deterred not to do it again, I got up and took my place in the third leg, making a mental note of which line was it and which line it was not, and I started running again. And sure enough, I made the same mistake, stopping where I shouldn't have, and again, the, thir- the, the guy behind me ran right into me, causing me to drop the baton and causing me to lose the race. That was the end of my track and field career. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says this, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. My question for you this morning is, as uh, we begin our sermon this morning is this, have you, have you stopped running to Jesus this summer? Jesus in this passage is calling out people who have stopped running towards him. He doesn't actually say it exactly like that. He's a little bit more direct and forceful. He says that these are people whose hearts are far from God, right? And I want you to imagine just a minute about how offensive, about how hurtful, about how much that would sting if you were a Pharisee, because Pharisees' whole lives were about the pursuit of God. They, were, they committed their whole lives to loving God and pursuing Him and being the best spiritual people that they could be. And here's Jesus, and His very first words out of His mouth to Him when they criticize Him is, your hearts are far from you. It's like they stopped running, that they stopped pursuing God, right? They were, well, let me explain a little bit about what is going on here in the text. Jesus is now uh, in his second, he's in, he's, he did three years of ministry. He's in his second year of ministry 
where he is spending time healing people, doing miracles, and teaching people about God. When we get to the story today, he is in his second year and he's becoming popular, which is setting up tension between him and the Pharisees. So the Pharisees set out to discredit Jesus, and so, and so they watch Jesus for any chance to discredit him. And at one occasion, they know that Jesus and his disciples do not cer- ceremonially wash their hands. And in front of everybody, they accused him of not worshiping or not washing their hands properly. So imagine this. Imagine you're in church, and, and you're here, and, and, uh, and, and you're watching, and you're, you're, you're not raising your hands during worship. And someone calls you out on it. Grace, why didn't you raise your hand during worship? You're not spiritual enough. It's sort of the equivalent of what is going on here. And then Jesus responds to them by saying, You're hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Well, who is Jesus talking about? Well, in the text, he's talking about the Pharisees. Who is he talking about today? Well, He's talking about the religious hypocrites, the people that are sitting in front of you or behind me, and it's the guy in the parking lot who cut you off on the way to church this morning with the bumper sticker that says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. It's those guys who never miss church and then lift their hands during worship but accuse you of not, but secretly judging others for not giving enough. It's those kind of people that Jesus is talking to. But have you ever just asked the question, what if Jesus is talking about you and me? What if Jesus this morning is saying that my heart is far from him? What if he's saying to you this morning, you and I have stopped running? How would you know? How would you know that Jesus is talking to you? This morning, what I want to do is I want to give you three gauges to determine whether you stopped running towards Jesus. And I want you to see this as a gift, not as a way to condemn you and go, you're the worst person ever, but as a way to keep your spiritual life with Jesus afresh this summer. Because here's what I've noticed. As the programs wind down, as school winds down, as, as, as we as Sunday school kind of wraps up and kind of gets into those months and we get into the summer months, summer tends to be a a time of being a little bit more relaxed, more campfires, more weenie roasts, more stuff like that. But I've also noticed that what winds up happening is we kind of stop doing those things that make us strong in the Lord. We let off the gas. We stop running. And somehow along the course of the summer, we can find ourselves far from God. Our hearts are far from God. So my my intention today is not really to shame you or make you feel bad as a person. My intention today is really just to give you three gauges or tests that you can give yourself in your heart to determine whether or not you stopped running towards Jesus this summer. And the, the, the three are this, if you want to write them down. I need you to watch out for, for ritual for compromise, and for pride. <clears throat> if you want to write those down. Three signs that you might have stopped running away for, running towards God this summer is that 
There's ritual in your life, compromise in your life, and pride in your life. Let me explain this. Number one, you could probably understand if your heart, you stopped running towards God when your pursuit of God is reduced to or replaced by rituals. Verse 1 and 2, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, let me explain what is going on here real quick. Jesus really isn't concerned about hand washing the same way that you and I are. When When we're looking at the text this morning, what is going on is this, is that God had a set of laws, a set of rules that he gave his people. And he said, I need you to do this. I need you to stay away from this. And so what the Jews would do is they would create a series of fence laws. And fence laws, or the oral tradition, were laws that they would would put in place so they wouldn't break the rule over here. So if the rule here was, don't touch the pulpit, they would make another rule that said, you've got to stand 10 feet away from the pulpit. That way, if they broke this rule, they would never break this rule. So what the Jews are doing here is they are creating... A fence law. And every time they went to the mall or the mechanic or the grocery store, they would come back in front of everybody and then they would ceremoniously wash their hands and let the water drip down their hands to symbolize the idea that they have touched no unclean thing. Because God's word had said, we don't want you to mingle with unbelievers. We don't want you to be mingle with people who don't, because we don't want you to get carried away in the faith. So what they would do is they would do this washing thing as a sign, a ceremony to everyone around them that they were clean and pure. Okay? And that was what Jesus and his disciples did not do. Do you know how they got the oral tradition? Do you know how they got the the series of sense laws? It started out, right? It started out from a good place. About 600 years prior to Jesus, Israel was one of the most powerful nations of the world at that time. God had blessed them through King David and King Solomon. And they gave him a set of laws and said, I need you to follow these. And if you don't follow these, if you do follow these, I'll protect you and you'll bless you. But if you don't, then what I will do is I will remove my hand of protection from you and I'll let the invading armies come. And we all know that. We all know that that's what happened because we've just spent the the spring learning about Daniel and Daniel's exile. And Daniel's exile is based on that, that they took God's word for granted. They took the rules for granted. And so God lifted his hand of protection. And Babylon came in, Persia came in, Greece came in, Rome came in. And so what winds up happening is God actually does give him a second chance. Seventy years after the exile, the people go back, they rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple, and they say this, never again, never again will we take God's word for granted. Never again will we do these things. Never again will we idolize or we will do this or we will mingle with this. How can we protect ourselves? And so what they do is they create all these rules to ensure that they don't break the original rule. That, my friend, came from a good place. The problem is, is it, it, over time it became as authoritative as the Word of God. <clears throat> 
you know what, friends? We all have friends' worlds. We, we all have those kind of things. They're not necessarily bad. The problem is, in the Jewish case, they became as authoritative as the actual law. And we have them today in church. I, you know, I was just trying to think of some modern-day examples of this. A really good one might be Sunday clothing at church. There used to be a tradition a long time ago where you came to church and you wore your Sunday best, right? You came to church and you wore your suits and you wore your dresses and you came to church and you did that. Why, was, why did people do that? Why do people do that today? Because you wanted to give God your best. You worked all day, you had all these grubby clothes, and then you came to church and God gives you your best, so you wanted to present your best to God, and so you wore nice clothes, and that was okay. But over time, the very thing that is intended to honor God actually became a problem, something that hindered God. Many of you know the story that I've told about how someone, I, I met someone in Winnipeg, a girl who was face plastered drunk, came into church on a Sunday morning wearing clothes entirely inappropriate for church, much less anything else, and she was broken. She needed to find Jesus. She came and she said, I, I'm here because I know my life is awful and I don't want to live this way anymore. Well, as you can imagine, everyone in church was dressed up nice in their Sunday best, and they saw this woman who was dressed in nowhere near light like that, and they proceeded, two women in the church who were well-meaning, proceeded to dress her down and lecture her for 15 minutes before the service about how she was evil and living in sin, and she walked out the door and never came back. Do you see what I'm talking about? Something that is good actually got in the way. It's a ritual that we have that, <clears throat> that sometimes can get in the way of Jesus, people meeting Jesus. Another example I would have would might be a, a fight I saw years ago in, in Burnaby over a church that was renovating, and they were trying to decide whether they wanted to put pews or chairs in church. Well, you can remember the, the fight there. Well, if we put... Chairs in church, we're going to be worldly. They're going to recline. We don't want that. We want pews. But the problem with it is the church was busting at the seams. They actually had to put chairs and TVs in the stairwells just to accommodate the people. And what they found was is that they could actually fit more people in the square space if everyone had an individual chair versus a pew because pews, people tend to spread out. But it became an issue, and people fought over it simply because it was ritual. I think that one of the ways that we stop running, uh, we stop running towards God are when the traditions overtake the, our pursuit of God. This morning, what, I want to ask you the question, what are the traditions you base your faith on but you've lost your relationship with Jesus in, in the midst of it. What are those things? Well, in my mind, let me give you two examples of what they are for me. It's devotions and it's worship. What do I mean by that? Devotions is a church word. What does it mean to have devotions? Devotions is time set aside to spend to God, devoted to God. And you know what the problem is, is I can spend more time falling more in love with this than the God that wrote it. I love the Bible. 
I love spending time in the Bible, and I, I love this book to death, but sometimes what happens is I can get so obsessed with studying it that when God speaks to me about an area in my life that I need to work in, I can go right over it simply because I need to study the Word. And I totally ignore what he was saying. When was the last time that you read something in God's Word simply for the sake of having your devotions and he convicted you on something, but then you moved over it? Okay. Or maybe it's worship. Just when I'm getting in the motion of singing songs. And here's the thing. is It's not just about singing songs. It's about singing to our creator of God. That you are actually communicating with God Almighty. Let me ask you a question this morning. When did you start worshiping this morning? When did you start transitioning from just singing songs on a screen? From actually talking to God and 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 worshiping him as God. You see what I mean? You see how easy we can do it? We can love our service. We can love Manor Church. We can love what God is doing here. But sometimes we can just stop worshiping him. Well, what should you do if that's the case? You know what I think you should do? Just say, God, I'm sorry. Hey, God, I know that I've made the ritual just a little bit more about that than you. And I'm sorry about that. So number one, our pursuit of God becomes more about ritual than him. Number two, that we justify compromise. Verses three and five, he says this. When, G, when, they, when they accused Jesus, Jesus answered to them and said, why do you break the commandment of the God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles their father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father and mother, whatever you have gained to me is given to God, he does not need to honor his father and mother. For the sake of your tradition, you may void God's word. So here's what he's saying. They're accusing him of not following the tradition, and Jesus punches back and actually just says, how come you're not following God's word, and you're following your tradition over God's word? And what I want to point out here very clearly, and I've said this before, is that Jesus asks a question. What is the question that he asked them? Anybody? He's asking them, why do they break the commandment of God for the sake of their tradition? It's very important that you and I understand that when God is asking a question, he's not looking for information. God knows everything. It's kind of like if you have kids and they misbehave and they want a treat. You know, the other day, I'm, I'm sorry to pick on James here, but the other day we were having an issue with James and he comes up at the end of it and he's like, Dad, can I have a cookie? And I said to him, James, do you think based upon the way you behaved that I should give you a cookie? Now what am I doing there? Do you, do you think that I'm looking for information in that, in, that, in that sense. I've already made up my mind, right? Every parent knows this. What do you think I'm trying to do? I'm trying to get him to figure out on his own why he should not be getting a cookie. It's the same thing with God. When God asks a question of you, it's not because he's looking for information. He's trying to reveal something to you that you and I would not otherwise understand if we get it. So when God asks a question... 
We have to be very careful about this because typically what we do is we, talk, we just skip over the why part and go to amend the behavior. So, for example, Jesus says, hey, why don't you just honor your parents? And our typical response is, oh yeah, I'm sorry God, I should go honor my parents. But you haven't really answered the question yet, why haven't you? Jesus is trying to get at the heart when he asks a question. He's wanting to expose something that we wouldn't normally see. So here he is and he's asking the question, why aren't you honoring your parents? And the answer would be given, well, our, our oral tradition tells us that we don't have to if it's given to God. And, and God, Jesus cuts right past that and he says, that's in the garbage, that's an excuse. You want, to get, you want my take on it? I think there might be three reasons why the Pharisees didn't honor their parents. Number one would be fear, flesh, or they, had, they were offended. Fear. If I take care of my parents, I won't have enough for me. Flesh. If I take care of my parents, <clears throat> I won't have any money to spend on myself. Offense. My parents never took care of me. They were bad parents. Why should I take care of them? Sometimes parents are the problem. Maybe I should punish them and get them to know what it's like when I was a kid in their old age. They find a loophole that makes them look spiritual and at the same time cuts them away from following what God has asked. So God asks a question. So this morning today, I want to ask a series of questions that cut to the heart. Not as a condemnation, but just that you might understand what is going on. Why are you willing to compromise? So the first one I want to ask is a money question. <clears throat> and that is this. Why is it hard for you to give? Why is it hard for you to give? <clears throat> Why am I asking that question? Because Jesus says there are, there are very few things in the world that show your heart better than money. Jesus says that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. So if you want an indicator of where your heart is, look at where you spend your time and money. That's what's important to you. Why do you struggle with tithing? Now, I'm not saying that because I need money. I don't. I'm fine. <clears throat> is it really because, why are you not tithing? Is it because you're not under the law but under grace? Is that the reason that you're giving it? Because it's true, we're not. We're not under the law, we're under grace. But is that your real reason for not giving? Is it because maybe you're afraid? You're afraid if you give, you won't have enough. Maybe it's, maybe it's just your fleshly desire. If I spend uh, money on tithing, I won't have time for other things that I want. Or maybe you're offended. Maybe God let you down and you're, you're in a debt. You're, you, he hasn't come through. He hasn't delivered you. So why would you want to give to God? Let me ask you a different question. Let me ask you a relational one. Why is it that you find it hard in your heart, hard in your heart to forgive? <clears throat> why is it that you say that people that you forgive people but still hold it against them and treat them poorly and backhandedly talk about them bad on social media? Why is it that when Jesus asked to for, forgive, it's hard for you? Is it because you feel like you need time to process the hurt? 
Is that the real reason? Like, I get it. I know that sometimes people hurt you and you need time to process that, but is that your real reason? Or is it because you're afraid that if you forgive, you're going to get hurt again? A lot of us believe that if we forgive, we're, we're just going to get hurt. But what people don't realize is yet your unwillingness to forgive is hurting you more than the, what they originally did because you're still binding yourself to that person. Is it flesh? I'm not willing to forgive because they need to pay. Is it an offense or probably pride that is keeping you from forgiving? Why are you willing to compromise on this? Why? Not, not a condemnation thing, but why? What's the reason that you're not doing it? Spiritual question. Why is it that you have time for work, play, friends, social media, TV, your time of golf, your motorcycles, and yet some of us have struggled time to find 15 minutes alone to God. Again, not a condemnation thing, but if God is the most important thing to you, why can you find time for Netflix but not 15 minutes to pray? Is it because you don't have any time? Is that the real reason? Or is it because you're afraid that if you don't have time, if, if you take time, you're not going to have time to do the things that you want? Maybe it's that you don't care. Or maybe that's you're kind of offended by God and you, want to, you just kind of want to stick to him, to him a little. Why is the reason, why is it hard for you to spend time in God's Word? Lastly, the, number, the third reason why the indicator that you and I can actually Check our hearts, this is our pride, to know whether we've stopped running close to God. This whole story is a public accusation against Jesus. The very act of hand washing is, is, a, is a public act that you would do in front of people. It wasn't something that you would do in your prayer closet or in your bedroom somewhere. You did it so that everyone could see. So when the Pharisees attack Jesus and they ask him, it's a very public way of doing it. Why do people do that? Right? Why do the Pharisees do that? Well, they did that to discredit Jesus and make Jesus look small and them look better. Right? You might be thinking, I don't think I'm better than other people. But <clears throat> let me ask you a question. Why do you criticize people? Why do you talk negatively about people? What makes you think you have the right to talk negatively about people? Is, you know why? It's because you think you and I are better than them. Now, I'm not saying that you, there's never a time where you have to sit down and you know you're a boss or you're, you have to talk negatively about their performance or there's something in your marriage that you need, need to work through or there's a friend that you need to have those conversations with. Of course, you need to have those conversations in the those require negative connotations. But oftentimes when we talk negatively about other people, it's not for the purpose of building the relationship up. It's actually for to tear them down and make ourselves look better in the process. Right? <clears throat> I'm sure many of you have heard of Freedom Session, a 12-step program uh, that is done here in Three Hills. And uh, here in Three Hills, uh, 
Freedom Session has found out that people who grow up in the church, who have homeschooled, who have sent their kids, uh, who've done everything right, who have raised their kids in the church, who raised them on Adventures and Odyssey, who did all those Christian things, they are the hardest to reach and minister to anyone else in the church. Why? A lot of them struggle with secret sins, secret alcoholism, anger outbursts, people-pleasing, depression, food addiction, and yet, out of all this, they are the masters of pointing out sin and infection of other people. So they have all these things that are wrong in their own lives, and they're the ones that are the most judgmental. Out of all the people that Freedom Session helps, Freedom Session has found the people who grow up in the church are the hardest to reach, and the reason is, is because we think we're better. The Pharisees thought that they were better, and that's why they publicly called them out. Have you ever done that? I remember, uh, I remember one time, uh, <clears throat> I remember one time uh, I was, uh, I was calling someone out on some, something, and I said, hey, Hey, listen, I, I just think you, you need to work on this a little bit. To which he responded to me, Dan, you do exactly the same thing. So let me give you an example. Let's say it's Evan. This didn't really happen, but let's say I, when Evan was an intern, you know, I would, we would meet up and we'd talk about the messages he would give. And I would say, hey, Evan, I think you went a little long on the sermon. And he went, Dan, you do exactly the same thing. Okay. Now, here's the thing. He might be right. And I might be right, but if I was right about Evan, does him telling me that I'm in the wrong and I do the same thing get you out five minutes earlier when he's preaching? Probably not, right? And why do we do that? Why do we, why do we push back on that? Because when people criticize us, we want to find something that they do and we push back on them so we don't have to answer for it. And this is what's happening here in the text. The Pharisees are calling Jesus out. So there's pride. So there you have it. There are three things that I would like you to watch out for this summer. Ritual, compromise, and pride. You know, what I find so interesting about the Pharisees, this is so cool. I don't know if you know this or not, but out of, there are four major sects in the time of uh, Judaism, of Jesus. The Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes and the Pharisees. And the Bible records Jesus' harshest criticism towards the Pharisees more frequently than any other group. Why is that? Is it because they didn't know their Bibles well? No. In fact, New Testament scholars suggest that out of all four groups, the closest group who had the, whose doctrine lined up with Jesus was the Pharisees. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection from the dead. Was it because the Pharisees didn't want to love God? I think that they originally, they, they did. So why is Jesus so harsh with the Pharisees? Why is Jesus always angry at the religious church people of his day? Is it because he doesn't like them? No. Why does Jesus spend so much time getting angry at them? Because he loves them. And he wants them to be saved too. He wants them to step out of denial and admit that they are just as sick as the sinners around them. 
Jesus is not interested in to help those who want to play church, kind of hang out here and do our thing that makes us feel good. He wants to set us free, and he's willing to set us free who are those who are willing for us to step out of our denial. Somewhere along the line, we knew that, but we stopped running towards Jesus just like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were people who grew up in church. They never did anything super wrong. They didn't have the past, that really big past, that really big past story, you know, where they were the really bad sinners and they lived a licentious lifestyle. They didn't have that, right? And yet Jesus reaches out to them, I think because he wants, he loves them and wants them to know him. Do you know, friends, I, I get the impression that God understands how hard it is for some of us who have grown up in the church, who have never really did anything wrong, we never really had the bad past, to love him as, someone, as much as someone who has been forgiven of an unspeakable past. I think Jesus understands that. And I think you need to know too that he loves you and he wants you to keep running towards him this summer. So whatever you do, whatever, as, as the Sunday school programs run down, as the Bible quizzing programs run down, and you go camping, keep running towards Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Right, let's call up and end the service with one more song.